Hi, I'm Anya Katz, and you're listening to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I started this podcast because I was tired of being stereotyped as lazy, triggered, and entitled. I wanted to give voice to a different kind of millennial and invite us to write a new story. One of a generation willing to challenge the status quo, embrace nuance and paradox, and reject PC culture. This podcast isn't about finding answers. It's about asking the right questions. How can we reinvent ourselves and the narratives we've been expected to inherit? How can we take ownership over the ways we participate in our own suffering? How can we move beyond victimization and into empowerment? How can we fix ourselves to fix the world? It's time for new dreams, new stories, and new futures. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. So glad to have you here. Episode 51. I feel like we're like in a new part of our podcast maturity. So thanks for sticking around throughout my adolescence. <laughs> I guess I need to like mature or something now. Um, I am really excited to bring you today's episode with Charles Eisenstein. Um, it's an intense one for sure. I was just listening back to it and, uh, I sort of suspected that, um, Charles and I would have a pretty intense conversation, um, just because I feel like our minds work in very similar ways. And, um, I was really looking forward to having a discussion with him, especially now with this time about all of the different insanities swirling around us from the pandemic to conspiracy theories to uh, just like our place in the world and how we are par participants in writing these personal and collective narratives. Um, so I figured we'd have a pretty aligned conversation, but it was interesting because I think what happened was like, because we probably think about things in a very similar way, and just think about similar things. The conversation went so deep so quickly. Sometimes with podcast guests, it takes a little while, especially when you're talking to someone remotely, to get comfortable with one another. Uh, sometimes I get upset because, like, at 45 minutes in, I'm finally thinking that we've hit a groove, and then normally that person needs to go and do something else, and I want to keep having another discussion now that we've really gotten into the meat of it. Uh, cannot say that that uh, applied to this conversation with Charles. We dove in right away, uh, which then led to an hour or so discussion that was pretty deep and intense, and uh, I'm I'm both a little bit uh, feeling vulnerable about it, <laughs> um, but also really excited to bring it to you. I guess maybe it is, maybe episode 51 is this sort of new level of, um, maturity. And when I say maturity, uh, I mean vulnerability and just asking harder questions and, um, being a little bit more willing to step into the shark tank a bit. I'm probably like overselling this. It's maybe not that crazy, but these are challenging times and um, everyone's really sensitive and fearful. And so maybe discussions that we would have had in the past when we have them now, they just feel a little bit more intense because um, we're afraid and everyone's on edge, which is understandable. Uh, all that to say, I hope you enjoy it. Um, the conversation that I had with him, I mentioned this a little bit last week uh, in my intro, 
So I want to elaborate on it today because the conversation that I had with Charles really helped to illuminate something for me that I've been thinking about. Um, I was starting to get sort of kind of like antsy and frustrated and to be honest, just angry at what I felt was sort of uh, going around rhetoric wise in terms of like going back to normal and loosening up the restrictions. And if I'm being totally transparent and honest, like I'm not completely convinced that social distancing is solving all our problems. I definitely subscribe to the fact that it's the safest thing to do. Do I think it's working? I don't really know if we have enough information about that yet. So this isn't about like this sort of um, anger or discomfort isn't in regard to safety even necessarily. Um, but I was getting pretty frustrated about all of this and because I didn't necessarily feel like people are going to get sick and that's why we need to stay inside, which is definitely a part of it, uh, but not all of it. Because that wasn't all of it, I was sort of confused where the rest of my frustration was coming from. And then I listened to a really great podcast, which is actually the recommendation of a listener of the podcast, uh, someone that I've known um, before the show started, actually, in my previous life as a person who worked in the natural products industry. Shout out to Rachel. Um, I was actually just commenting about it's cool. I have a few people in my life like this that have sort of followed me through different very different iterations and evolutions of myself. You know, sometimes there are people that just sort of only exist for a stage, but then there are people who may not necessarily be significant in your life um, or maybe not significant at any given time, but just sort of stay present in your life through all of these evolutions of yourself. Uh, anyway, I feel like uh, my friend Rachel is kind of one of those people. So she uh, messaged me and sent me an episode of uh, This Jungian Life, um, which I had never heard of before, but it's a bunch of Jungian analysts uh, discussing multiple topics. I suppose I've only heard one podcast episode so far, but I'm intrigued. I actually would love to have one of them on the podcast because especially what they were talking about in this episode uh, resonated with me so deeply. But uh, they did an episode, uh, it's number 107, uh, which I highly recommend about negrito, um, which is a term that sort of refers to darkness, the dark night of the soul, sort of like a personal transformation. And they were drawing parallels between uh, the a personal dark night of the soul and this sort of collective dark night of the soul that we are in right now. And it and in that description, in that sort of parallel, did I recognize where my frustration was coming from. And it reminded me of um, an experience that I had that I think I've probably spoken about on the podcast before, but I'm going to tell this story again. Um, I uh, was living in San Diego. I was married. I was living a very, very different life than I am now, uh, living a different life than I think I wanted to be, although some of that was a little bit unconscious. Anyway, I decided to leave that life and basically throw out everything I thought I knew and start from scratch, which was understandably a pretty fucking traumatic period of time. Um, I sort of knew that I'd have to go, th that I would have to go through a crisis of identity and everything else in order to get to where I needed to go. 
Um, so I had some faith that the end result would be great, but the process in itself was pretty terrible, uh, in a multitude of ways. Um, and I, one thing that happened sort of at the beginning of this process was that I realized I needed to move out of the house that I had owned with my ex-husband. I had thought I was going to be keeping that house. Um, so the sort of grief of losing it was pretty intense and I moved in with my mother for a while and then when I realized, one, I wasn't getting the house back, but enough time had passed where I realized I really didn't want any part of that life back and clinging to that house wouldn't have made me happy, um, I decided I needed to find an apartment. I was living with my mother in Santa Monica, and uh, at the time, I, most of the people I knew and were close to were in the Los Angeles area. I really didn't like LA very much, but um, for a sort of quick move and transition uh, and to be around, you know, the people that I cared about and my therapist and all of that, it felt like finding a place in LA was the best move. Um, I decided Topanga was the only place that I could possibly live in Los Angeles because it is the least LA place ever, uh, but still in LA. It's, uh, for those of you that don't know, in the Santa Monica Mountains, it's in a canyon. It's sort of isolated and um, if nobody told you otherwise, you might not even know that you are in Los Angeles County. Um, so I found this apartment miraculously. It was gorgeous and had an amazing view and just like, I can't really believe that I found it because it's really hard to find places in general in Topanga, let alone extremely nice ones at the top of the canyon, like with this freaking 180 degree view. But I found this apartment and it felt so aligned with who I was and sort of like the path that I was on and where I wanted to be going. And, but I felt a disconnect. I felt like, like oh, here I am, I'm free. I can finally live the life that I want. And I'm in this beautiful place and like, I should have this wonderful life now, but I'm stuck in this shit show <laughs> of trauma and discovering all of these things about myself. Emotionally, I was dealing with a lot of um, pretty intense illness. And I was just sick on in every definition of that word. And I was frustrated because I felt like externally, everything was sort of in place for me to be living the life that I wanted to leave, to live rather lead, live, whatever. Um, but, um, I wasn't able to do that. It was like, I could see it and I could touch it and I could feel it, but I couldn't go to that place. It was like, I was trapped in some sort of nightmare and my like dream life was around me, but I couldn't get access to it. And at the time, what I told myself to sort of calm me down was, you know, well, you're going to get back to your normal life again. Like things are going to return to normal. You just have to get to, through this phase and, you know, this will be the place that you heal. And I sort of envisioned myself living this new life, which at the beginning of this process, you know, it really felt like I was just going to be the person I was before this crisis in a new environment. And I don't know exactly how much time I spent in that apartment before I get rid of it. There was a, a long period of time where I, it was still mine, but I was subletting it. Um, it was a couple of years, I suppose, um, maybe a year or so of me living there. And it, And I sort of kept waiting for it to become what I thought it was going to become. And I remember 
when I was moving out, someone asked me or many people asked me sort of like what that felt like and what that was like, because that was such an intense period of time in my life that I lived there. And I was reflecting on this, this experience where, you know, I, life never returned to normal. My life never went back to the way that it was. Of course, in retrospect, I'm grateful for that. I'm much happier in the life that I'm living now. Having said that, the life that I'm living now, the identity that I have now, contains a lot of pain and grief and trauma that I was either not aware of before or I just hadn't experienced yet. So, <clears throat> although I'm still Anya, and obviously the journey of my life you know, has taken a trajectory, things are never going back. I can never unsee what I've seen. I can never unlearn what I've learned. And so that apartment in Topanga, while it was definitely beautiful and definitely aligned and peaceful in many ways, it always felt heavy. It just always felt so complex, which is obviously a metaphor for my entire life you know, up until that point, up until that process of coming to terms with my own darkness, my own shadow, you know, pain that I'd experienced, but did everything in my power to avoid. Up until then, things were a lot simpler, you know, in many ways. It's easier to be naive. It's easier to just be unaware. Um, of course, that's not the life that I want to live, but having said that, there's no way that I can go back. Um, I don't want to go back, but even if I wanted to, there's no way. And I think in that process for myself personally, I recognize that the harder I pushed to get out of that phase of my life, the harder it pushed back. So, you know, I was... I was trying as best as I can to speed up the process, but of course I didn't have any control over what was going on. These things felt relatively predestined. I didn't have a choice. I had to stay in it. I, you know, the only way out is through. I had to go through it. And any time that I tried to find some sort of trap door, you know, it was a trap. I would just end up back where I was and sort of frustrated with myself that I even tried to escape for the 90th time. So it occurred to me when listening to this podcast that I think part of my anger and frustration is this like projected anger and frustration um, based on my own personal experience of going through a dark night of the soul, like projecting that onto the collective right now, like wanting to shake people and be like, you can't just get out of this. You can't escape this. You can't just go back to normal. And I do think in a purely tangible sense, you know, like if we do try and get out of the social distancing thing and the virus does get worse, we will have just wasted time, you know. Uh, but even, you know, separate from the virus, what's happening now is much more complex than a pandemic. There are so many things changing that we're not going to be even aware of for a long time. And change is painful and scary, but we can't do anything about it. We have to sit in this pool of fear and uncertainty 
until whatever greater force decides that it's time for us to move out of that space. But we're not in control. I mean, if there was one lesson that I learned in my own life during that time, it was the importance of relinquishing control recognizing how much time and energy I wasted by trying to find ways out, by trying to force my way out. Eventually, I was completely defeated. I'm grateful for that. I mean, I, I, I'm grateful for having that experience because I know a lot of people aren't given that sort of experience. But um, eventually, I realized, okay... <laughs> I've tried, I'm pretty smart, and I've tried every way to, like, speed up this crisis of my life, and it's not happening, so I might as well do something else, which was to utilize the time in the best way that I could, so if I'm not meant to be out and about distracting myself with this new shiny life I've decided I'm gonna live, what what work is meant to be done right now? I'm I'm grateful I sort of believed in something greater than myself in that sense because I felt so small for the first time. I felt so out of control for the first time in my life. Or at least I felt so out of control and wasn't able to find my way back into control for the first time in my life. And it's hard for me not to apply that same, you know, um, way of seeing things or experiencing things to what we're going through collectively. And I know that can be a lot harder because it is collective and, you know, unless we personally get sick, it's hard to find peace with the fact that we can't do what we want to do. But it is a gift. And in many ways, the things that we will end up going back to, let's say, even if it takes a really long time, you know, the things that will quote unquote go back to normal, like go being able to go to our friend's house for dinner or, you know, going to see a movie or something, those things are going to feel so much better than they did before. Things that we previously took for granted, we are not going to take for granted in the future or at least I hope we won't, I hope we won't for some time, at least. Um, but having said that, although things will go back to normal, and in some ways, some of those things will feel even better, as far as the life we used to live as a whole, that's not coming back. Ever. <laughs> and yes, the life we return to will be a lot deeper in many ways, a lot darker in many ways, a lot more complex and comprehensive. But it's a very simple concept, right? This whole thing of like, you can't experience the joy until you experience the pain. Why is it that the dinner parties are going to be so much more fun and exciting and special? You know, because we experienced the loss of them. We appreciate things more when we allow ourselves to feel pain. This was a concept that I only understood conceptually before I allowed myself to feel pain. <laughs> and God knows I avoided that for as long as possible. Um, but once I did it, 
you know, and even in the moments of pain, you know, it became something where it wasn't like, oh, because I, just because I experienced pain, now I experience more love and more joy. It was that, but it was more so that those things are the same or can coexist. It was in the moments of like the deepest grief that I also felt the most gratitude, which is fascinating. I've definitely talked about this before, I think in, you know, relation to like yin, yin and yang, you know, there are two separate pieces, but they contain each other. They're both keys to each other. So I think it's vitally important right now that we stop trying to push and we just embrace that a change is occurring. Something is fermenting. <laughs> um... We're just making a giant batch of kombucha right now. And maybe it'll be a bad batch and we'll try again. But that process is painful and not that pretty. But that's life. You know, Chris and I talked about this on the last episode. Like, life is not... It's a lie. It's not rainbows and pretty shiny things all the time. Pain and and I don't love the word suffering, but pain and grief, these are vital, imperative parts of the human experience. Eventually, things will transition. They're not going to go back, but they're going to transition. We will enter a new cycle. And eventually, something will make sense. Some of it will make sense before the other parts make sense. <laughs> but I guarantee that the more complex you allow your life to be, the more enjoyable and meaningful it becomes. So, if you would like to support the podcast, which I hope you do, um, please visit my Patreon page, patreon.com slash Anya Kotz, A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S, um, I just sort of redid all of it. There are a lot of new perks. I have a book list. I've compiled all of the books that everyone has ever recommended on the podcast and put that up as a resource for patrons. There is a WhatsApp group chat, which I am super psyched on, actually. The people in there are amazing. I think I'm going to limit that to 25 people, and I think we're maybe at like 13 or 14 people now. Um, so it's filling up, but basically the purpose of that group is just to connect with one, one, uh, with one another to connect with me directly. Um, I've been sending, uh, different articles and things I've been reading and podcasts I've been listening to, and we're all just sort of supporting each other, uh, through this very weird, challenging time. Um, but it's really cool. The discussion in there is really, uh, sort of heating up and getting, um, interesting. So it's so nice to know who you are on the other end of this microphone that I'm talking into in a extra bedroom. Um, very cool to connect with you all, even if it is through, uh, technology and a device, uh, but lots of other stuff on the Patreon as well. Um, I've been creating playlists and, uh, yeah, a lot of that's available for any tier that you sign up, patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. 
Um, if you don't have any money to spare, which I totally understand, another great way to support the podcast is to go into iTunes, hit subscribe, leave some stars in a review that helps the podcast show up more in search results and also helps, um, people who are just sort of curious about the podcast be like, oh, wow, it looks like people like this. I have more of a reason to try it out. Um, or if I message a a guest who's a little more well-known and who has a little less free time on their hands, um, the more reviews uh, and ratings that the podcast has, the more likely they are going to want to give me the time of day. So in the end, this helps you because I can get cooler, more interesting people on. Um, I think that's it for today. I am going to play you into my conversation with Charles with a cover of The Times They Are a Changin'. I was gonna just play the Bob Dylan one, but I figured that was too easy. I like like to sort of challenge myself in the songs that I uh, choose to play on this podcast. I probably spend way too much time, honestly, on this. Uh, I feel like I spend just as much time choosing songs as I do, like editing the entire podcast, but whatever. I, uh, even before I started the podcast, I knew that doing this would be one of, um, the most fun parts about it. And it definitely has been. So there are a couple covers of that song that I enjoy. Uh, and the one that I'm going to play for you today is, uh, by Medeski, Schofield, Martin, and Wood. Um, but goddamn, is that song super relevant right now? <laughs> so <laughs> enjoy the song. Enjoy this conversation with Charles. And I will be right here waiting for you when you're done. That sounded kind of creepy, but um, I will catch you on the other side of this conversation. Okay, bye.
Welcome to the show. Um, it's funny. I feel like you're kind of almost this weird, like everyone's COVID therapist right now. There's something about your work and I feel like what you've spent many, many years doing that applies so perfectly to this time right now. Obviously the essay that you wrote, but I feel like thinking back on so many of the other um, books that you've written as well, it's like, I I had this whole idea of a conversation I wanted to have with you before this, um, mm -hmm. and now that this is happening, it's sort of even more applicable in many ways, which I'm sure you've sort of picked up on yourself as well. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I've been talking a lot about, you know, the collapse of the story and and crisis and transformation and transition, and and now it seems like it's happening, or maybe it isn't. Right. Well, yeah. that was what I was going to ask you, too. I mean, you know, I think I, like you and probably so many other people, have been sort of expecting this and by this some sort of collapse. But of course, the question is, is that what this is or not? Like, I can't really decide from day to day whether I feel like this is something that's going to bring us into sort of like... um you know, more issues, greater destruction, or is this the point at which we'll sort of recognize how broken the systems are and have been for a long time? I don't know either. Yeah. Uh, but I do know that it's put us into unfamiliar territory. Uh, very few people have experienced anything like this in their lifetimes, at least in modern, you know, in the industrialized um, so-called developed countries the total collapse of systems. People have experienced things like this, you know, in Rwanda or the former Yugoslavia or even the former Soviet Union. There was a time of of breakdown, probably at this level, um, when the Iron Curtain fell, you know. Uh, but in our in our country, we, we would have to go back to the Great Depression to 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 find anything at this at this level. Yeah, so new territory, which is kind of exciting if you had been feeling stuck in the old territory. And I mean, this, you know, describes myself even um, on the one hand being afraid of radical change, but on the other hand, yearning for radical change, because I know that not just my own life, but the life of humanity in general and the planet could be a lot better than we've made it. And we're kind of stuck, stuck in our patterns. Um, and now at least we're getting a pause from the patterns. 
And we're seeing, you know, one thing that happens when patterns are interrupted is that you try to establish them all the more strongly in this scramble to, to cling on to something uh, normal and to some, to make some meaning of it that fits into your existing worldview. Like, like there's a slot, there's like a little, uh, a box and, and I want to put this in one of my existing boxes, but to do that, anyone, I think today to fit it in one of the existing, existing boxes, you have to, uh, take off parts of it. You have to ignore parts of what's happening. It's like Cinderella, hmm. um, and, and the, the sisters who have to cut off their toe or cut off their heel to fit their foot into the silver slipper, uh, to, so, so, you know, to, well, I'm not going to try to decode that myth, but, but basically we have to do violence to reality in order to fit it into conceptual boxes that have become obsolete. So the situation is challenging us to, um, to embrace some uncertainty, I think, and, and maybe not to jump too quickly to the explanation whether it's the official narrative or if it's like a totally um, what they call a conspiracy narrative. And boy, I don't know if you want me to keep going on and on here. but <laughs> Yeah, go for it. <laughs> um, like I, I get in trouble even for saying that, mm. you know, this all this philosophizing about, well, we don't really know. And we're at this crossroads and it's like, come on, Charles, people are dying out there. How could you suggest that we should uh, entertain these alternative narratives. I mean, life is on the line here, but that critique already pre-assumes that we, that the official narrative is right. Like, how do we know right. what to do? And so, yeah. Well, or that there's just one narrative. I mean, I feel like what I, my audience like probably thinks it's amusing at this point. I feel like the word I use most frequently is nuance or paradox or both. Um, and I feel like your mm -hmm. work encapsulates that really, really well. And I, you know, I agree. Like I, I feel, I wanted to ask you about the whole conspiracy aspect of this and what I feel like from just reading your work around this stuff so far is that there was something you said about like the skeptic and the believer that the like intention behind that is coming from the same place, which I'd love to hear you elaborate on a bit. Um, but I too feel like the only thing I can do at the moment is just sort of like sit in a room with all of these different narratives around me. Um, and that is the more uncertain position and that is the more out of control position. But I think to do anything other than that, to sort of um, take ownership over any of those narratives right now is not advisable. Yeah. And then there's part of me that's like, you know, sometime maybe I do have to take a stand and choose one of the stories because, you know, we have to live life in the 3d world yeah. and we have to make plans and make agreements with other people. So at some point you do have to kind of decide, okay, I'm going to go with this one. I have not really reached that point yet. I'm generally skeptical of conspiracy theories. Um, not because I believe the official narratives, but because conspiracy theories give a little bit too much credit to the discipline and competence um, and long-term thinking of the conspirators. 
what's you know where's the where's the role of just human folly and and chaos in all of this and in the chaos the emergence of coherence that is not actually imposed by a human being so conspiracy theories they kind of buy into one of the deep assumptions of civilization which is that the the world itself does not have an innate tendency toward any kind of order it doesn't have an intelligence or a purpose of itself so if if something that looks like a conspiracy is happening that looks orchestrated that looks like it's going toward a certain destination a conscious destination that must mean that somebody's doing it cuz reality isn't just like that is it, it doesn't just self organize not to say so so and then what i'm saying is maybe it does and maybe what looks like a human conspiracy is the coalescing of of archetypes into a certain configuration that may be very frightening uh, and and dystopian but the solution of let's find those horrible people who are perpetrating this on us and expose them may not actually be a real solution because even and i'm not saying that there that that people are not complicit in it and playing the roles necessitated to bring this about but they don't necessarily create those roles which means that if you take them out other people step into the roles and then and then boy this is getting really metaphysical but but which might be like a total turn off no, for you no go for it <laughs> do it <laughs> but it goes to the it, you know it goes to the point of then the next question is how do you uh affect change on the 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 mythological level uh, um on the non-human level how how do we change the pitch of the playing field um how do we change the temperature of the room you know the the how do we change the uh the soil from which what we see sprouts um how do we operate on the level of narrative when we when we understand that reality is a conversation it's a relationship it's not a thing outside of ourselves now the the normal postmodern view would be to say well it's a creation a human creation and that's not what i'm saying right it's it's not that we decide what's real but we maybe choose from a menu of offerings what's real or what 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 to believe what the story is and when we subscribe to it then it starts to arrange reality around it and boy i'm i'm yeah i just feel like a little little uh, vulnerable you know just because uh, i mean some of these critiques are kind of sting you know and here i am philosophizing and people are dying so i hope it's useful at least a little bit to somebody yeah well yeah i was going to ask you too cuz i do i've been feeling some guilt honestly around um sort of especially over the past few years uh going through a lot of transitions in my own personal life just feeling like there was some inevitability to something like this happening so there's this weird sort of like um yeah like guilt self righteousness i don't like see i told you like this was going to happen and i and i'm consciously aware of that as well like there are people dying this is a real thing however i feel like this is sort of could be preamble 
uh, to many other things. And um, it's hard. I, I mean, I guess when I was saying, like, there's all these narratives around the room and I'm sort of in the middle, I guess I was saying a little bit of trying to weave myself into whatever the myth or the story is, because I feel like there's like some psychological skip step that's happening, whether we are like the virus is the problem and is the enemy and we're at war against the virus or, you know, the telephone companies are the problem. It's like, where is our sort of participation in that, even if we're not the creators of it. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, yeah. you know, like how do we embody and actually experience like the fear, the lack of control and the grief right now, instead of projecting it outward. Yeah, that's a, um, I think a really valid insight that, that the kind of the frequency of response to if, 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 if you're holding the source of the problem as an identifiable other, whether it's a virus or the Illuminati, uh, it's still the same um, frequency of victimization, of helplessness, uh, of a surrender of our sovereignty, which isn't to say, you know, I, that I don't want to turn that into victim blaming, but we have to recognize our power to um, rewrite the story. In the, in the realm of virology, for example, the paradigm of these you know, unstoppable viruses that, that according to statistical laws, you know, will affect, infect a certain percentage of people and, and you're, you have certain odds of infection and certain odds of death. Basically, that's putting the agency onto random forces. You are, you can't do anything about the odds. Another way to engage uh, a virus or an epidemic is to say, well, why or why is it that 80% of people are not affected by it or whatever the number is? Is it just like this random thing? Or is there something about, you know, this gets into terrain theory, uh, which stands uh, in contrast to germ theory. <clears throat> so why, why, I'd like to ask that question curiously, why is one person infected and another not? Why does one person have symptoms and another not? What is it about myself that might make the virus deadly or innocuous? Not that it outside myself is or is not, but it is, again, a relationship. And the same, um, the, the same kind of understanding goes, applies to uh, conspiracy theories. And I, I don't want to say that uncharitably. You know, I don't want to, I don't want, I'm not meaning to disparage and ridicule them, but the same, the same um, way of thinking can apply to them. So it's not like these super powerful, evil Illuminati with, you know, extraterrestrial technology, et cetera, et cetera, who are victimizing a helpless humanity. But our field of consciousness invites them in, perhaps, or makes room for them or makes us susceptible to them, just as a degraded immune system might, or whatever condition you have, might make you susceptible to a virus. And 
It may even be, and this is another, you know, uh, somewhat uh, unorthodox area of, of, of biological thinking, it may even be that viruses do us, uh, in some cases, a service. They're, they are key in the um, <clears throat> spread of genetic material uh, across, from cell to cell, from organism to organism. They're, they're part of evolution. Evolution would not actually be able to happen without horizontal transfer of DNA. The old Mendelian paradigm is obsolete. Evolution does not happen solely through random mutation and natural selection, but organisms help each other evolve by spreading their DNA. Uh, and one of the main ways that the DNA gets spread from one to another is by a virus. So a virus could actually bring you necessary information to deal with a certain challenge, or it could bring you other kinds of information. But basically, so to, to, to apply that metaphor to the Illuminati or whatever, uh, who could maybe be likened to a virus that has hijacked humanity's creative capacities for unholy ends, we might say, okay, what evolutionary purpose are they serving? Even if that narrative is true or has truth in it, why, what is this challenge allowing us to do? Just as a, uh, the challenge of a disease can be a real watershed moment in your life. It can be an initiation. In fact, there are some thinkers, especially anthroposophical thinkers, who, who believe that uh, childhood illnesses are necessary, that they um, instigate a leap in cognitive development, that they give the child the experience of, I can do it without help. You know, because when you're really sick with measles or something, mom can't really help you. There you are in your bed, you know, but you did it. You get better except maybe sometimes you don't. There's, in any real initiation, there's always a risk. So do we accept growth, the growth, the development that comes with risk? There is no such thing as development without risk because you have to, something is, 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 has to be lost. So we could ask the same thing, you know, if we're talking about conspiracy theories, um, what, what, what maybe is the necessity of this challenge, the developmental necessity of this challenge? So this, this is the kind of thinking I want to invite, whether I'm speaking to, uh, to the conspiracy world, uh, and, and it's more than just conspiracy theories, there's all these alternative narratives, you know, um, or wh whether I'm speaking to the uh, conventional world. Uh, I want to, to, to bring in a little bit of ambiguity and mystery and nuance and, and uncertainty to the way we've been seeing things. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, it's, it's especially interesting in regard to the whole, I'll just like, I haven't talked about this on my podcast yet, so I'm going to come out right now saying this. Um, so my parents didn't vaccinate me when I was a kid and I feel sort of safe saying that cause it wasn't my decision. So <laughs> don't shoot the messenger. Uh -huh. Um, but I certainly as a child got multiple different, um, you know, I had whooping cough really, really badly, for example, that they vaccinate against. And, you know, my mom's whole thing was, oh, you know, well, it's strengthened your immune system. And um, it's fascinating to me that I can't really talk about those things in any sort of a nuanced way with anyone. Like, maybe we don't eliminate vaccines, but we talk more about 
you know, the research and we improve upon them and, uh, you know, to not like to not be able to hold these two truths simultaneously to embody both like the idea of terrain theory, but also how do I manage not, you know, inadvertently um, hurting someone who's a lot more susceptible, right? <laughs> like, right. Uh, how do I not infect someone who's older? Um, it's hard for me in practice to understand how to live in both of those worlds. Yeah. Um, there's a few things I could say about that. Yeah, the the vaccine conversation is so <laughs> yeah. polarized. It, uh, yeah, I feel it's, it's about to get worse, too, I think. Yeah, it's about to get worse. People just, I mean, they disown each other. You know, they unfriend each other on Facebook. It, yeah. it, it just, I just lost like side, a thousand listeners. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, it, it just seems inconceivable that somebody could be opposed to them. You know, like, don't you don't you understand science, right. you know, and 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 to the people on, on the other side. Uh, it just seems that those who believe in the vaccines are completely brainwashed by this enormous pharmaceutical propaganda machine that excludes all kinds of relevant science. Um, and, and, and it's just hard to build any kind of bridge between the two sides. And it's really hard to occupy um, a nonpartisan place because when things get really polarized, then there is no such thing as neutrality. If you're neutral, if you're if you're saying, well, I'm not really sure which side is right, and I think both sides have some valid points, then you're doing running aid and comfort to the enemy. You know, you're you're creating a false equivalency. So, like, you're an enemy then too, maybe even more of an enemy than the opponent is, because the opponent demonstrates how right you are by how wrong they are. So, uh, I mean, like, yeah, I could probably alienate half my audience too. Um, no matter what opinion I have, you know, pro or anti. Um, and then it gets to like, do you, you know, am I just a fence sitter and stuff? Um, I mean, I do have my opinions. I think like, I don't, I don't vaccinate my kids. I haven't vaccinated any of them. I don't get them myself. Um, and none of my kids have any allergies or autoimmune disorders. And a lot of people, I mean, of course, some kids are fully vaccinated and totally healthy. So that's like, an, that, see, every side has these data points that just don't fit their narrative very well. So, you know, I, 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 I would, so I say I have my opinions, but am I certain? No. Do I really know that vaccines are dangerous? No, I don't really know that. It's just from having read, you know, lots and lots of research, um, from having met many people who have, you know, had children um, uh, suffer damage um, that that seemed to them to be directly correlated to vaccination. Yeah. Like I have my opinions. But that's not a scientific study. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I really don't know. Um, and that is troubling to many people because if you say, I don't really know, you're saying, I don't fully trust what authority is telling us, what especially scientific authority is telling us. And for a lot of people, especially on the left, 
the only remaining um, institution of our society that you can trust is science. Like that's the last fortress of integrity in a system that's otherwise totally corrupt. They don't trust the politicians. They don't trust the bankers. They don't trust the, the corporations, you know, but you can still trust the scientists. So to say that maybe this institution is questionable, then what do you stand on? And then, and so to even say that, it's like, but Charles, don't you understand the scientific method, you know, and we're, we're, we're checking our opinions against reality through experiments. And these experiments are, are uh, vetted by peer review. And, you know, basically, how could you not trust it? And then you can get into a conversation about the deficiencies in the peer review system and the problems with academic publishing and the way that it's funded, the questions that are not asked, how paradigms protect themselves, institutional confirmation bias, the replicability crisis, and so on. But by even bringing up those conversations, you're already suspect. Because what does the CDC say? Well, you know, like people, it, it, and this gets into the issue of, of uncertainty. It's so uncomfortable not to have at least one bulwark of, of truth that you can say, here's where the truth is. If you don't have that, then where do you source the truth? And I think a lot of people are going to be put into that situation. And where do I source the truth when I cannot trust any authority? I go back to my body. You know, I go back to what do I know when I'm standing barefoot on the ground? What do I know for sure? With the COVID-19 crisis, I don't know um, which of the narratives is right. Uh, I don't know. Maybe, I mean, I think probably it's a lot less deadly than we were told. Um, some of the recent antibody research is coming out that supports that, but I don't know for sure. I don't know if social distancing was a big mistake or not. I think it probably was, but I don't know that. But what I do know is that we need to have a conversation about death. And that's what you were bringing up, like, well, I don't want to infect others. But of course not. We, 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 I mean, these others, you know, they're my mom. You know, they're like your grandma or whoever, you know, whoever you love. And these are not, you know, these are precious beings. And so we get into a conversation of what are we willing to sacrifice to keep people alive longer? And why... Because that's that is a a, a very um, worthwhile value to like my mother just had a, a surgery, um, you know, and it looked like she might not make it, and now she has made it, and she is just so grateful, and she's frail but she's loving life. You know, I'm so happy that she has that gift, that is the gift of modern medicine, and. I mean, so that's a value. And there's another value in, like, being able to congregate, having dances, having churches, having have the freedom of assembly, having hugs, um, having concerts, festivals, carnival. Uh, like, there's a value in that, too. So the answer is not black and white. It's not that that we sacrifice one for the other and never ever have uh, a concert again 
a live meeting again because it'll increase the death rate by 0.8%. Like, that's not a given. It might be what we decide, but we need to have a conversation about it. And that conversation opens up all kinds of hidden realms that have been taboo, have been off limits. Like, you don't talk about death in our society very much, except we're going to do anything possible to save lives. Newsflash, there is no such thing as saving lives. There's only postponing death. When you really take that in, then you start to ask, how do I want to live and how do I want to die? And as a social conversation, how do we want to live? If we can live on average 0.8 years longer, do we want to live in a society where handshakes and hugs and gatherings are only in the history books? That deserves a conversation. Some people might say, yeah, we can do it all online. We're discovering that now. We don't need to ever gather. We can date online. We can talk online. You know, we could maybe in the future, we could have, we could even procreate online with sex robots that take the sperm from one person and impregnate somebody else. Like that is a future. Science yeah. fiction writers have written about it. So, so, and some people, you know, Maybe that's like, I'm not sure if, if I know anybody who would like embrace that, but it is a conversation to have. Yeah. Well, it's interesting when you said the, like, whether social distancing was a mistake or not, and then taking that farther is in like, it, maybe it was a mistake in regard to a way to, you know, prevent the spread of the virus. But, you know, I was thinking the other day, like going to a restaurant again or going to a dinner party, it's going to feel like holy shit, like this is, at least for me personally, you know, like I feel so, and I was someone that I feel like already did really appreciate community and, you know, being social and recognize the importance of all of those things. Um, but to think about, right, I mean, we're getting into a philosophical discussion about like everything happens for a reason, but it is interesting to me to think about what prolonged social distancing might do to people's perspectives around this and you know even like the kids who are home from school right now you know what are they learning about what's important as well and how might that affect us generations down the line yeah uh, like that that's the result i hope comes out of this is that we realize just how precious it was to be together and that we value that even more and we say wow we've been on a trajectory toward more and more isolation more and more distancing, even before coronavirus. Do we want to keep going there? Now that we realize how precious it is? No. Let's change our direction. Let's be, let's have more community. Let's have more gathering. Let's have more togetherness. Let's not live so much of life online. Let's not assume that the future is in online education and online conferences and online this and online that. Like, let's, let's question that, this distancing because now we know how precious it is. That would be a beautiful initiation to receive from this yeah. virus. I'd love to have you talk a bit more about the whole control and uncertainty aspect of this and maybe talk a little bit about, um, I talk about control in my podcast a lot. I talk about it, I think, a lot in the realm of like, it's sort of like energetic archetypal expression or it being you know, control being sort of patriarchal in nature, um, and that we've sort of lost sight of like this truly what I feel, I guess, is 
you know, feminine power of sort of relinquishing control and trusting. And I think as a society and collectively, we've lost sight of that. Um, I sort of understand why, but um, mm -hmm. if you could sort of like define where you feel like we have this addiction to control in our lives right now and how this pandemic is sort of poking some holes in that a bit. Yes. Yeah. So what I said in the, in the essay, I wrote an essay, the coronation about this and, and, I said that our our civilization is comfortable with a crisis in which it can that it can address through some kind of control, where there's something to fight. So, terrorism, for example, it's almost like the the institutions, the elite institutions of our society, were like, great, finally, now we can spring into action, because here's some people to bomb, you know, here's a country to invade. We know what to do now. Unlike poverty or domestic violence or uh, opioid addiction or autoimmunity uh, or a decaying democracy, like there's no, there's no enemy to fight. These things involve ourselves in an intimate way. So usually we just kind of ignore those or we blame them on whatever external enemy is convenient. So like, for example, blaming decaying democracy on Vladimir Putin. Does anyone really believe that that's why we, we have such a dysfunctional or Trump for that political matter. system? Yeah. No, yeah, or Trump for that matter. You know, it's like, like yeah. Trump is a symptom. So, so, but it, but it, it's it's a relief to be able to identify an enemy, and so here we have coronavirus. You know, coming into a situation where we are not healthy as a society. Our general level of health has been declining for decades. Even life expectancy in the U.S. is starting to decline. I mean, this was inconceivable. If you had asked somebody 50 years ago, what is the future of lifespan? They're going to be like, well, you know, in the future, we're going to have, you know, 200 year lifespans. But but there's been almost no gain at all in the last 50 years. And, and now it's starting to, to go down. So, um so, yeah, so this um, response of control hasn't been working very well for a long time. It was the technologies of control, of domination, of conquest were supposed to make life better and better and solve all of our problems. And they've, they've not. And we've stagnated. Our progress has stagnated as the maladies of our way of life have mounted. And now here, finally, there's something that we can control. Quarantine, uh, distancing, lockdown, vaccines, etc. Antivirals, right? So that, because we're so eager, unconsciously eager for something, for a crisis like that, we jump on the opportunity and maybe even inflate the danger. Because now we feel powerful. Now we feel that we can do something about it. Whereas we have felt helpless to do anything about the downward spiral of society up until now. So that's, that's like, and, and, you know, when control measures fail to make something better, often the response is even more control. So if um, there's a school shooting and you um, lock all the doors of the school and have video cameras around the school to monitor everybody, and then there's still a school shooting somewhere, 
you say, well, obviously, you know, that student got in because we didn't have metal detectors and we need razor wire and we need, you know, dogs to sniff out bombs. And, you know, like there's just the or, or medically or agriculturally, <clears throat> if your herbicide stops working because the weeds have developed resistance to it, you need a more powerful one and a more powerful one and a more powerful one. Or if you're um, an alcoholic and the alcohol isn't making you feel better anymore, then you need more of it. So, the, so anyway, this is the, the paradigm of control. And for thousands of years, progress has meant to us, conventionally at least, it has meant an increase in our ability to exercise control over the world. So this is a paradigm that is very old and you associated it with patriarchy. So I wanna say here that control isn't bad. Even war isn't bad. Fighting isn't bad. Like sometimes there's no alternative but to fight. Sometimes that's the best thing. But when you see the world through the lens of us versus them, then there's no alternative but to fight because any problem is because of a bad guy and you try to find one to fight. So I'm not even going to say patriarchy is bad. It's just that it's expanded beyond its proper domain, just like control has expanded beyond its proper domain. Right. And the health crises of our time are not amenable to control. The technologies of control do almost no good at all against autoimmunity or addiction or depression. If they were effective, then we wouldn't see rising rates of depression and suicide, for example, or domestic violence. You know, this is not these these, as I said before, these are intimately related to ourselves and they're they are the symptoms of of trauma and like legacy trauma and and needs deep unmet needs and you can't go to war on a symptom and expect healing to happen so that that is asking us to look outside the patriarchal technologies of control for the next stage of the unfolding of of human civilization and that is to the feminine and to the matriarchal which is a tricky word because matriarchy is not the same as patriarchy with women inserted into the positions of power. That's not what it is. We barely even know what it is. But I, I do resonate with what you're saying, that it is to, to bring in other ways of dealing with a problem besides dominating and controlling something. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, it's hard for me to think about this sometimes outside of like sort of all or nothing. <laughs> Um, there's a part of me, you know, I've always thought for so long that it's so ironic that everyone thinks, you know, we're so protected and in control. And yet really we have absolutely no control. Everything that we do is sort of dictated by and controlled by systems or resources that we don't, you know, anything could disappear. Like the internet, what if it disappeared, you know, yeah. money? I mean, it's insane to me how many things we don't have control over yet. And, and yet I feel like there's such uh, there has been such blindness to that. Um, and it's hard because on the one hand, of course, I'm, I don't know if you've ever read or heard about the book, uh, the great Bay by Dale Pendle. Um, it's a fascinating book. Mm -hmm. Uh, he was sort of like an ethnobotanist, but he wrote this sci-fi book in 2010 
that very much seems to uh, it was about 2020 and 2021 that there was like a collapse of civilization that started with a global pandemic. And wow. um, yeah, I, I read it a few years ago and it was right when Trump was elected. And al already then I was like, I can't tell the difference between real life and this book. And now I'm just like, uh, what is happening? Um, but anyway, like, you know, conceptually, you know, there, it's the total collapse of all of these things is so appealing. And yet experientially, you know, I think I, I heard you talk recently about like, well, how do I order my, you know, sleep, my homeopathic sleep patches or something like that? Right. Um, it, it's hard. Like, I'm, I wonder how you, if you sort of feel pulled in both directions, because there's part of me that's just like any sort of, uh, you know, half-assed collapse isn't going to work. I want the whole thing. We need the whole thing. And yet that's, you know, almost too uh, intense or broad to even really feel into. I, I, yeah, I, I wouldn't say we need the whole thing. I mean, collapse can mean so many different things. It, it, it I mean, total collapse would be, um, you know, a reversion to Stone Age times. Uh, that I don't think that that's necessary. I think what's necessary is for our story about what the world is and who we are to dissolve. And that can happen through a series of initiatory ordeals. This is one of them. And it, I think it is just the first of many. It is setting a chain reaction in motion. And we're going to face serious economic dislocation uh, quite soon. In, in, I think, a matter of months. A lot of people already are, but still the basic structures and systems are operating. But a lot of them are kind of operating on borrowed time. It's, it's, you know, it's like the grenade, the pin of the grenade has been pulled already and it just hasn't gone off yet. You know, certain processes are in motion. And also, but it's also true that human beings are really resilient and resourceful and inventive and most of the food is still there. Most of the things that we need is, is still there. Plants still grow. Um, we'll, we'll, I don't think we're going to face mass casualties at this point. There's, we certainly don't have to. But we are facing this uncertainty. And like, like you, there's part of me that wants things not to change. And there's part of me that recognizes that things weren't actually that good. Even as a relatively privileged person. Things were not that good. This system was not even working for the 1%. If you look at their depression rates, their suicide rates, maybe lower than, you know, the white working class, you know, like 50-some males, you know, maybe those are higher. But, but just overall, um, suicide and depression rates are really high among, like, CEOs, you know, addiction rates. I mean, this is not working. And there's part of me that knows that life can be so much richer than it has been. So that plus, you know, just general social conscience. I mean, however much it wasn't working for me and the elites, it was working even less well for most, most people on this planet. And for most of them, not just less well, but less and less well. 
so, and that's why, like, it kind of annoys me when people say, well, you know, it's very privileged of you, Charles, to um, celebrate this disruption when it's harming people of color and the working class even more than it's harming you. But I'm like, if disruption is necessary to escape the prison that we were in, then it is a good thing. It's only if you think that that the society that we had was the only one possible that a disruption to it is a bad thing. But this this, this is an expression of the fear of the unknown. And it, that fear is within me just as everybody else. It's natural and normal and appropriate to be scared of the unknown. Yeah, I'm just, this, in a way, there's nothing wrong. Um, we're supposed to be afraid of this. And then we're supposed to move from fear into engagement, into, and eventually into, you know, the, the, it's, it's similar to the stages of grief, where first we're like, this isn't happening, and uh, moving through eventually to, um, you know, anger that this is happening. A lot of people are angry that things are different. Um, then kind of a bargaining, you know, maybe it's going to go back to normal, maybe, you know, and then eventually into acceptance in, in which you have integrated the new normal or the, the new pieces of reality that have been revealed, including the preciousness of life. And now we choose from that new place. Yeah. And I think, you know, when I think about total collapse, whatever that means, you know, sort of likening all of this to an addiction and not that I necessarily think abstaining a hundred percent actually cures any sort of addiction because I think the intention behind the addiction is not, mm -hmm. it doesn't have anything to do with what substance you're using or whatever it is you're addict addicted to. But I do hold some skepticism that our addiction to control, our addiction to, you know, quote unquote, civilization is so strong that, you know, how many things would need to break down in order for us to truly uh, unravel and restructure. And of course, I don't have the answer to that. But um, I, I, I get pulled between like, I want this to end so that people, you know, have their livelihoods back. But also, I hope it lasts as long as possible so that we really come to terms with a different version of reality. What if it what if it will last as long as possible until we come to terms with a different reality? You know, this this question um how deep does the breakdown have to go? And will we actually uh learn the lesson? This is not some abstract question outside of ourselves. This is something that we participate in answering. And, and, it, and it invites a next question, which is, how do I contribute to the circumstances in which we will uh, pass this initiation? How do I contribute to the circumstances in which we do learn a valuable lesson from this and come through this breakdown into a different kind of society? It's not like, is it going to happen or not, as if that were not involving ourselves. Like, we can contribute to that. So maybe one way to contribute to it is to have and broadcast conversations like, like ours. Um, maybe it's to identify what is possible 
um, to to speak from the new truths that are being revealed and the higher level of compassion that I think is instigated. I mean, you know, people are thinking a lot more about the vulnerable right now and the preciousness of life. And so we could say, what, what would that look like as a new society when we take care of each other? So there's, I think there's a lot of ways to um, change the, the answer to that question and not just to hope that coronavirus is going to rescue us. And maybe it will, and maybe it won't, and we're helpless about that. Like, this is a call to, to action. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was talking to a friend recently who's going through sort of like a personal apocalypse, dark night of the soul period of time, and sort of like likening this experience. This isn't the answer or the solution, but that that experience gave you a key to open a door, right. maybe, and that that door was always there. Um, but now you have the key. You still have to go inside. <laughs> you still have to open the door. Um, but at least we have the key now. And I feel like this pandemic is maybe like one of those keys um, and that it will take a lot of sort of personal initiative and evaluating, like, how are we? I just redid the intro to my podcast and, you know, asking the question around, like, how are we participants in our own suffering mm -hmm. and narratives, right? Like we are undoubtedly um, in more ways than I think other things are external. I'm curious to hear, I'm sure you've drawn correlations um, sort of between this like human sickness and the sickness of our planet. Um, I read this interesting thing today that made me think of this in sort of strange, tangible terms that there was some study or science coming out about how they thought that maybe um, the virus was able to live in air pollution, which was why cities were experiencing um, the virus more severely. And whether or not that was true, just something about that symbolically was interesting to me, uh, sort of like this parallel between the human sickness and the sickness that we're inflicting on the planet. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of skeptical of, of that one, uh, although I do think that we have created conditions of such ill health for ourselves that we are susceptible. Um, most people who die from coronavirus are already seriously ill. They have hypertension, they have diabetes, um, they have, you know, some comorbid condition. So it is bringing into our awareness that we are not healthy and maybe also that our planet is not healthy right now, that in the same way that we've degraded our own health, we've degraded the planet's health. And yeah, like many of the things that are responsible for the degradation of our own health are related to the, to, to the degradation of the planet's health. Uh, you know, we poison our own bodies just as we poison the earth's body. We, um, confine ourselves to to the indoors just as we confine ecosystems to to uh isolated patches uh you know through through uh highways for example that chop up that that chop up wildlife corridors and and you know that that i mean it's a bit of a stretch you know but i think that the basic consciousness um, of questioning our way of life 
is potentially fruitful. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. It's again, one of those things in living in both places of like taking action against something, but also recognizing just like how energetically everything, you know, is linked. I went through my own sort of dark night of the soul a few years ago. And it was fascinating to me that through my own processing of grief in like a way more intense way than I ever had before opened me up to feeling grief on behalf of the planet in a way that I don't feel like I was capable of doing before. Um, yeah. So whether, yeah, whether or not this process and those feelings and that pain um, will somehow connect us to the world that we are connected to already in a way that we've been sort of kept from or, um, yeah. If we, I mean, just like the consciousness of, of caring about vulnerable people, which, which, you know, we talked a little bit about before most people are wearing masks to protect others, not to protect themselves. That consciousness translates into taking care of the most vulnerable places on earth, the most vulnerable species. So at least that's my, my hope, you know, is that, is that we can integrate the truths that are coming to the surface, coming to consciousness, the truth of, wow, there are people outside of myself that, that are suffering. It, it does awaken compassion and you know, at the same time, we're seeing heightened levels of hostility and um, polarization when it comes to the weaponized narratives that are coalescing around coronavirus, where people are taking it as and using it for as political ammunition to destroy their enemies or their geopolitical rivals. Um, so, again, it's not an automatic deliverance from our condition, but it is an opportunity. Like that, and that's, that's been my feeling is that it's putting us at a choice point. In a way, you could say we've always had a choice. But for me, usually, and this gets back to Naomi Klein, you know, who, who, and, and her observation that, that big change only happens through crisis. Um, that we become aware of a choice that we hadn't been aware of before. It's like we've been walking, we're, we're, we've been walking down this road with our gaze on our shoes, so mesmerized by our routines that we never looked up and saw the exit ramps that were all over the place. And now we stop, we've been stopped, and we look up and We've just so happened to have stopped at a place where there are many exit ramps going in many different directions, uh, a, a radiation of paths into the future. And we, in a way, we, we've always had a choice, but now we know we have a choice. We could, though, take the same direction that we've been on. We could, we could refuse to get off on these exit ramps, and we could continue going down the road of inequality, injustice, and ecocide. We could, but we don't have to. And that is 
for me, the uniqueness and potency of this moment. Yeah, and there's almost more grief in that, right? Like the whole like living in cages with the door wide open. Yeah. It's a lot easier to sort of be like, well, I, I was forced here, but to recognize the ways that um, we could have gotten out sooner, <laughs> but maybe didn't, mm -hmm. uh, I think is a hard pill to swallow in many ways. And I'm sure that's partially what I think a lot of us are trying to avoid right now. The universe is generous. If we, I, I think we very well might just double down on control. I mean, it kind of looks like that, you know, that we're and double down on authoritarianism and double down on distancing, double down on hygiene. I mean, that's a form of control. Uh, and and it doesn't really bring the health that we want. Probably hygiene will make us less healthy because yeah. we won't have the challenges to our immune system and the microbiome coming in and, and all. But Anyway, we could double down on that and continue in the direction that we were go we are going, but then we will be given a new and maybe harsher opportunity to change direction, and we could say no to that too. Just like the addict in the downward spiral hits, it's not just like you hit bottom once. You hit bottom, and then you hit a deeper bottom, and a deeper bottom, and a deeper bottom, and there's always a chance to... to um, I mean, to take 12 steps language, there's always a chance to relinquish control. To give, I mean, they talk about giving yourself over to a higher power because you know that you're helpless against the addiction. It is all about release of control. Um, and thereby, which only makes sense if you accept that the universe beyond us has some kind of intelligence or consciousness or beingness. It's not just uh, a, an empty um, array of building blocks, atoms and void, force and mass, but that there is inherent order and purpose in the world. Um, only then does it ever make sense to let go of control. To say that the wild isn't just the wild. Right. So we will get we will we will get repeated invitations because the universe is generous, just like the addict, you know, even on his deathbed has I mean, we, we, it may be invisible to us, but the choice is even there. The choice is eternal. We are never fully lost, even though we have and, and, and the grief is appropriate because we have missed a lot of opportunities. There was a big off ramp in the 1960s. You know, we saw what the world could be, the summer of love, you know, and it seemed so close. The, the hippies, that generation, I guess that's your parents' generation, you know. My parents were before then. Um, I'm kind of in between um, Generation X for me, but, but you know, my parents' generation, I mean, your parents' generation, like the, the hippie generation, like a lot of them were like, it's so obvious, man. There will be no more war in five years, no more money, you know, like we're all going to live in peace and harmony and love. And it just seems so obvious. And it didn't happen, did it? But I think that they were seeing a, a, a true future that is still available. It's just that we've taken a bit of a longer road and gone even farther from that. 
And so we missed that chance, and, and grief about that is appropriate. It's sad, because a lot of beauty has been destroyed, a lot of life has been destroyed since then, and we have another chance. And if we do not take that chance, more will be destroyed, and that will be sad, and we will have another chance. That choice will never go away. Right. Yeah, I, I think about that a lot as well, just like the cyclical nature of progress, in quotes. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, how we sort of keep returning to the same point in a slightly different way, having learned more, having suffered more, and then we just we sort of keep coming back. And I don't know whether it's now or it's my generation that's gonna actually sort of make the change. I do feel like if there is a change made now that without the sort of experiences and, um, you know, gifts of my parents' generation, like this wouldn't be possible either. I do think there's building blocks, but yeah, I, I, it's fascinating because I do feel like we're in this returning <laughs> cycle in that respect. Um, hmm. and I, you know, I was thinking too about in terms of what you talk about it, like the gift economy and all of that, one aspect of this that I've found really interesting is in taking people's sort of day jobs away from them. Um, people are sort of almost forced in this into this position of like, well, what do I like to do? And what mm -hmm. am I good at? And what are what are my gifts? And um, like this podcast for me feels so much more meaningful even now than it did before because it just feels like a very authentically aligned project um that you know i'm sure your work as well is like clearly helping i think so many people feel some sense of sanity at this time but um i'm curious to see how this might help people like awaken to themselves uh in a myriad of different ways that will then affect us collectively yeah i'm curious about that too well, I could keep going, but I feel like that's a good place to end it. I really appreciate mm. you taking the time. Um, before we go, if you could just tell everyone where to find you uh, out there in the world and learn more about your work. And then I also ask everyone a really annoying question, which is <laughs> to recommend um, one book to the audience. Uh, I keep a running list for all of them of either something you're reading right now or just something in general that has meant a lot to you. And if you want to pick more than one, that's fine. Okay. So uh, you can find me on the interwebs, uh, charleseisenstein.org is my website. And a book that had a huge impact on me when I read it in my early 20s was Chagyam Trungpa's book, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. And a book that I'm slavering to read right now is called The Invisible Rainbow by... Um, Quite see it from here, but um, you could look it up. It's about the history of electricity and mm. its, a, its relationship to health. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, so those are those are two little recommendations. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much. Hopefully, we can do this again sometime. Yeah. Thanks, Anya. It was fun. Hello again, everybody. Thanks for sticking around and listening to that conversation. I really do hope to have Charles on the podcast again, so we can talk about things maybe outside of the pandemic, uh, 
not to say I wasn't eternally grateful to have that conversation because I was, but I basically had like another six pages of questions to ask him um, about lots of other things. So that uh, will hopefully happen soon. Um, again, if you would like to support the podcast uh, and you have a couple bucks to spare, head over on head on over to patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. Get access to lots of different things like t-shirts and playlists and an exclusive WhatsApp group chat and book lists and lots of other fun things. If you don't have any money, I totally understand who does these days. Um, but you can also support the podcast by subscribing on the iTunes store and leaving some stars and a review. That helps quite a bit. So I appreciate all of it. And uh, other than that, just tell your friends, send them an episode. My forever goal with the show is just to reach as many people as possible and to generate as much of a community as possible. So at the end of the day, whatever you do, um, the main motivation uh, on my part, but I hope yours as well, is just to expand the space in order to include more people. I'm going to play you out with a song that I just heard for the first time recently. I'd actually never heard of this band before, Why Oak? But they're pretty rad. Um, actually, the this song that I'm going to play, which is called uh, The Louder I Call, The Faster It Runs, I actually heard an acoustic version of it first, which I was going to play. I didn't realize it was the acoustic version, and then when I did, I was like, I wonder what the regular version is like. And I debated for a little bit about which one to play, but I think I like the regular one a bit better. So that's what you're going to hear. But if you like it, I highly recommend checking out the acoustic version of this song as well. Um, I've listened to some of their other music, and it's also pretty rad. So Y-Oak, W-Y-E-O-A-K is the name of the band. And yeah, this song, I mean, the title in and of itself, the louder I call, the faster it runs, definitely... Um, resonated with me, not just in regard to my own personal journey, but the one we are on collectively right now about pushing and the harder we push, the harder it pushes back. It's a fucking pointless exercise. <laughs> so, um, yeah, don't go running after something. Just, just let it come. Let's let this process unfold as it may. And enjoy it while we have it and not waste our very, very precious time and energy trying to escape something that we cannot escape. We're here and at least we're all here together. I, I promise for those of you that have not gone through like a super traumatic personal experience, this whole like collective thing is way better. <laughs> the fact that I can like email someone in another country and tell them to like take care and be safe you know, not that I want more people to be at risk, but there's something super powerful about the fact that we are all experiencing this together. So let's just pay attention to that and feel into it and see what happens. Until next time, love you all.
Yeah.